1: For 20%
0: off your first system.
2: The podcast will begin after this message.
0: Today's episode is brought to you by Naftogaz of Ukraine, a core pillar of European energy security. When Russia's Gazprom abuses its dominant market position, Naftogaz relies on the rule of law to defend Ukraine's and Europe's interests. We have and will hold Gazprom accountable for its misconduct in the market for gas supplies to Europe.
2: Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number 1 EU Politics podcast. The British Parliament is simply too strange and too divided to be worth predictions anymore. But remember this, if there's no extension and no deal, the Parliament has now effectively ordered Theresa May to stop Brexit via their Wednesday vote by 312 to 308 votes to block a no-deal Brexit in all circumstances. That makes me feel very smug about taking a week off from work next week. In this episode, we talk to Twitter's senior strategist, Nick Pickles, about what the company is doing to clean up its platform, the most elections and politics focused of all the major digital platforms. After that, we speak to Cornelius Hirsch, the podcast's new resident polling guru, before welcoming our wonderful panellists, Lena Rabirus and Alva Finn. Before we do that, though, I want to uphold a promise I made at an International Women's Day lunch last week, and that was to conduct an audit of the ratio of men and women appearing and their speaking time on EU Confidential. We counted everyone and everything on the podcast in the last 12 months, and we found that the main interview guests skewed male, 68 men to 44 women. But when we added in the podcast panellists, Alva Finn and Lena Abaroos, the speaking time for women guests was 60% of the total guest speaking time, versus 40% for men. And when my speaking time as host is included, the overall speaking time ratio is 54.7% men to 45.3% women. Not perfect, but we're on our way. Joining me now on the podcast is Nick Pickles. He is the Senior Strategist Globally for Twitter and you're in Brussels for Disinformation Week. Tell us, what is the event or events that you are lining up for and what's the message you're trying to bring to these audiences here in the
3: EU? Sure, well, I think the key thing is actually it's not about delivering a message, it's about listening and learning. So Disinformation Week is led by the Atlantic Council. There's an event in Greece, there's an event in Spain and then two days here in Brussels. And so it's really about making sure that we're hearing from the latest research in the field. We're hearing from people, not just who are taking a global lens, but the people who are on the ground monitoring, you know, really niche, really local issues. And then making sure that we're part of the policy discussion about how you respond to these challenges. Because I think one of the hardest things about disinformation is it's a constantly evolving, constantly moving challenge. And so we as companies have to be part of that conversation, but also learning from the experts in the field about what they're seeing and making sure we're playing our part to respond.
2: Now, the European Commission itself has started to move on the path towards regulation. And the first step was they worked with companies like Twitter and all the other big ones to develop this self-regulatory set of standards, like a code of practice on disinformation. And they've been pretty tough on you in their first report. They said, "Okay, you've done quite a bit to tackle fake or suspicious accounts, but they're a bit sceptical about the level of data that you and other companies have provided about how you going to stop disinformation spreading in the future. I guess they're giving you brownie points for looking back and making progress, but saying you need to do more. What's your take on that? And are we inevitably headed towards regulation in this field?
3: Sure. Well, I think as a starting point, we do need to do more. So if you look at the past year, we launched a fake account reporting flow. Users can specifically now flag fake accounts to us we launched a critical policy one of the things about disinformation that often gets forgotten is the most powerful information operations often involve true information so we introduced a policy about you can't share hacked materials on twitter that's something that often isn't talked about a huge amount but i think the role that hacked information plays in information operations is critical so we and made- that's sort of wikileaks style
2: and material think- or if it's if someone else has sort of ripped off the hard drive and then given it to someone does that
3: count as hacked as well yeah and i think this is the there's a great book the guns of august that talks about how you shouldn't prepare for the next war looking at what happened in the previous one and i think something that we're very conscious of is you can't write a playbook for how to defend elections now just by looking at what happened in 2017 2016 2015 and before so in the last iteration it may have been through a third party group hacks were published but there's also you know emerging websites that might be new that might be set up specifically for the purposes of distributing materials Uh, there might be fringe organizations who themselves come into possession of information that's been hacked so we didn't take a kind of prescriptive approach of it has to be xyz we took a very broad approach which is if there is information that's being hacked that's the critical test the distribution isn't something we're going to focus on because we don't know how it might happen next time. Mm. So we've got to craft policies that are flexible and can change with the threat rather than trying to write a policy for what happened two years ago, which might not work now. So sorting out fake accounts is a priority for the company. We've said that manipulation of the public conversation goes against our fundamental purpose of serving the public conversation, making sure users can flag things, stopping hacked material being shared. But also on the data access point, something I think is really interesting is we took the decision last year to publish everything. So we published an archive of information Mm -hmm. operations that we believe to be tied to the Russians, the Internet Research Agency, the Iranian state, Mm -hmm. and the Venezuelan state, and more recently, the Bangladesh state. Every tweet, every image, every video, there's hundreds of gigabytes of data there. That's enabling research on a scale that was never possible because that data was within companies. Mm -hmm. So I think the challenge is sometimes the most useful data isn't the thing that is measured across industry. So we think we can do more, we're going to do more. Uh, We launched our advertising transparency for the Mm -hmm. EU elections a few days after the report.
2: And that's the sort of archive system where you can see who has paid for promoted
3: tweets and so on. Exactly that. It's about informing the public about, you know, the spending that's happening. We launched that two or three days before the report came out, so the timing was, was almost lined up there. But then looking at what are the other things we can do. So that's where we published more information before Christmas, the second round of transparency on information operations, but also keeping our policies up to date. We learn from every election. We don't look at one election in isolation. We look at what happened in Mexico and Brazil. We took that into the midterms. You look at what happens in the midterms, we take that knowledge into India and the EU. When we look ahead at Canada later in the year, or the UK, whenever (laughs) the UK may have an election, we'll take what we learn into those elections. It's not a a static process. It's a constantly evolving one. And one of the things that I've struggled
2: with, with this EU election, because it's effectively 27 simultaneous national elections, and it happens in so many languages, just trying to keep on top of things is a nightmare at any level with this election. So I imagine somehow trying to spot all of this happening in so many languages requires some huge resource investment or some excellent set of software that can look at things in all languages. How do you sort of cope
3: with that investment challenge? Well I think that the first thing is to be honest and say we're not going to solve this challenge ourselves. You know partnership is essential. So whether it's the partnership with member states and law enforcement at a national level, it's partnerships with institutions here in Brussels from the commission, but partnerships with civil society. It's making sure you've got those partnerships across the board and then making sure the teams internally have the tools and resources and that's where I think it's this idea that Conversations around elections are incredibly important, but conversations across the board are the company's singular priority. So if you're trying to manipulate a conversation, period, we want to step in and intervene. Elections are a subset of that overall conversation, but if someone's intimidating a politician or a journalist to silence them, whether that happens inside or outside an election, period, we want to take action. And so for us, it's about making sure that we're on heightened alert Mm -hmm. during elections. But it's about making sure that resource actually continues and those partnerships are permanent. Elections aren't something that you turn up for three weeks beforehand and you leave the day after voting day. You've got to be on it all the time.
2: And then, I mean, maybe this sort of answers the next question, but I tend to feel like tech companies in general need to do more in this space, but that governments aren't really giving them fair road rules in lots of respects like if I just take the example of online advertising and the transparency around it like you've obviously done your own initiative but I think only five out of the 27 EU countries actually have laws or rules about this and so a part of me feels like the governments are abdicating their responsibility at some level as well do you feel like you get enough from them or are you operating in a bit of a vacuum here
3: no I think this is something that, that is increasingly recognised. We need a whole-of-society response to the challenges around disinformation. So whether that's media literacy and critical thinking in school educations, as you say, it's making sure that the offline laws match the online laws, and then making sure tech companies are playing their part and making sure that our platforms aren't being used to manipulate the conversation. Because the exciting thing is we're about to go into the the most digital European election ever, the most digital Indian election hundreds of millions of people are going to engage with politics through social media. That's a massive opportunity to increase democratic participation. So we've got a job to play. But I think it's absolutely right. If you if you want to defend against the threat, you need a societal resilience mm-hmm. as well as a technological response.
2: Now, shifting to some of the other issues Twitter's trying to address, I've been a Twitter user, I think, for 10 years, very happy with my little blue badge and quite addicted to it all. And one thing I have noticed is that it's less of that sort of community feel of when it was a smaller thing. So as it became like bigger and more powerful as a tool, I would say it probably coarsened as well as a platform. And I think you've been looking into those issues. So I guess I wanted to know what's the latest there of how you're trying to keep it a clean, sort of healthy place. And organizations like Amnesty say like it got so bad that Twitter's become a toxic place now for women online so what's your response to those sort of claims
3: yeah and you know I've been at the company five years now and when I first joined we'd only just launched in-app reporting you know we didn't have policies covering a whole range of activity the intimidation of people on twitter is something that goes to the heart of our purpose you know our purpose is to serve the public conversation that public conversation is something that we are singularly focused on the health of that conversation But I think looking at Amnesty's report, for example, they were absolutely right to say we didn't inform users enough about Mm -hmm. what happened when they reported things. Mm -hmm. So last year, we started telling users specifically, this is the tweet that we have taken action on. This is the account we've taken action Mm -hmm. on. Here's the rule it broke. And we do that in app. We used to do that in an email. People often miss the emails. Mm -hmm. So being transparent with users. Last year, for the first time, we published a breakdown of the policies we receive reports for, and how many reports we receive from users, and what action we take. Again, brand new, Amnesty had called Mm -hmm. for it, many others had called for it. That transparency informs the policy discussion and it gives users confidence that we're taking the right steps. Are we at the end of that journey? Definitely not. There's things that over five years I'm very conscious that if we change a rule, bad actors change their behaviour to try and get around that rule. So you're constantly looking at what can we do more of. Last year we did a strange thing for a tech company. We asked the public to give us feedback on a policy before it was launched Mm -hmm. um, around dehumanisation. And the feedback was, actually, the way you've constructed this policy, we think, is too broad. Narrow it down. We're worried about restricting speech, which people might find distasteful, might find offensive, but is still intrinsic speech as part of society. And that's always going to be our challenge. We find that, in some cases, the best response is to remove the content. In other cases, the best response is to put it behind a warning message. In other cases, it's about ranking it lower because the behavior behind that account suggest that account might be not behaving with the same integrity as other users. And is it
2: most often real people who are creating the offensive content, or do you look into it and then find, oh, hang on, this is a bot of some kind? And the reason I ask that is one of these kind of like ongoing, permanent debates in the digital world is, should people be forced to use their real identities online? And I used to be of the view, oh, well, no, they shouldn't, because what about the dissidents? What about the people who can't be their real selves in real life and so that's why they have these other identities online and then i've sort of i mean i haven't completely swung the other direction but now i start to think well hang on that just lets a bunch of people be douchebags if they also don't have to have the accountability of like here's my passport number or here's my date of birth somewhere where they could be tracked by authorities or or by you so yeah the question on real versus bot and then do you have any views on that identity question
3: yeah, I think probably the biggest change that's happened the past two or three years is the this perception that essentially there was a choice. You're a bot account or you're a human account. And I think that distinction is is increasingly kind of blurred. We introduced something on Twitter end of last year where we tell you the app someone uses to tweet. Mm-hmm. And the reason we did that is because you can get more context around, is this account using an automated app? Is it using something that's sharing content from websites they read? Mm-hmm. Or have they sent it from you know their iPhone or their, their Android device? That kind of context is important because, increasingly, you get people who are very hyperactive, particularly around politics, who are definitely real people. But someone says, oh, it tweets more than 50 times a day. It must be a bot. We've seen that kind of crude distinction. I'm a distinction. bot. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. And, and we've seen that distinction used in, in some academic research, where you know the, the threshold for being a bot is, do you tweet a lot? And you know, in some cases, there was a guy from Glasgow who it was, oh, he tweets a lot, and it's, it's at night. It's out of UK waking hours must be a suspicious bot account so he went to his local newspaper to say look you know i'm a security guard so i work night shifts i'm very passionate about politics human account but it was perceived because of the time of day and the volume it must be a bot so i think this bot versus real thing is increasingly blurred we're taking action on 223 million accounts every year to challenge them based on their suspicious behavior 75 percent of those accounts get caught and get suspended and removed so when people try and run automated accounts we're going to suspend those accounts and catch them where they break our rules but if you use an app that allows you to sign a petition and then auto tweet out i've just signed this petition well that's not a bot behavior that's people being civically active so we've got to be careful to not totally crush that space but you're right the longer term questions around identity Twitter obviously has the blue badge, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. although, strange enough, it's a white tick in a blue background. It's not a blue tick, <laughs> <laughs> which is the sort of geekery you get to when you've worked at a company for a long time. <laughs> but that idea that there are ways of giving you trust and context around an account beyond us asking for you know, a digital ID card and verifying it with a government. So mm-hmm. you know, we're already in that space oh, of thinking. There's a thought. What if you had a mid-level
2: verification system where for the public figures or whatever you have, the white slash blue badge. But then you could have a voluntary system, like people who wanted to have their identity connected to their accounts. The green badge or whatever you might want to call it. Is that the sort of idea you'd ever consider?
3: Well, we piloted something in the US elections last year, which gave election candidates, rather than having just the blue badge, they had the blue badge and an election label, Mm -hmm. which described the race they were running in and the district they were in. Mm -hmm. And that kind of extra context is something that we're, we're absolutely looking at. There's a great piece of research about journalism in Mexico last year where the threat to journalists is so great in Mexico right now, if a journalist uses their own name, people instinctively distrust it because the view is if they're saying something important and saying it with their real name, they're at risk so yeah. the most trusted sources there are pseudonymous, so we want to protect those users, it's something that you know, human rights groups tell us about regularly particularly outside of, of the developed world is that ability to speak without using your own name is critical Well, maybe one last
2: question on
3: context because we could talk all day. That's
2: the nature of digital these days. The EU obviously is trying to promote itself as the leading regulator of technology in the world, and there's a bunch of unfinished files as we move into this changeover at the Parliament, at the European Commission. Is there anything that you know, you think the EU must pick up and run with in its next mandate, or anything where you think, okay, like this is unfinished business, and we've got to
3: stick with it. Well, I think if you if you look at regulation globally, it's balancing some in cases some cases contradictory tensions. So the idea of privacy post GDPR, critical part of digital rights and human rights, is protecting users' data and the right to privacy. At the same time, the desire to do more proactive work by companies. Well, how do we balance those two things? How do you protect user privacy while enabling companies to proactively look for things that may be harmful? Mm -hmm. So I think making sure regulations tie up is really important. And then secondly, and we have to remind people that Twitter actually isn't the same size as some of our peer companies. You know, we have 4,000 staff globally, is making sure regulation works for industry, not just for the the three or four companies you see in the headlines. Mm -hmm. So this is an issue globally. It's our job as industry to actually engage in this debate more? uh. Actually,
2: the the global point is a really important one, I think, because I think what we had seen in the earlier generations of the development of this digital world is a lot of innovation and growth out of Silicon Valley and then other people sort of playing catch-up or feeling like it was an us-versus-them situation. But you're a really good example of more and more Europeans taking on prominent roles in companies that were headquartered or started in the U.S. Do you think it is becoming a global conversation now, like less us versus them and more involving everybody in
3: it? Yeah, absolutely. No tech company the kind with the reach that Twitter has is sat looking out at the world and saying we don't need to worry about what's happening outside the U.S. Longer term, I think the trend is more about how do we defend those global values that brought the free open internet to life and enabled it to thrive and not just about you know three or four tech companies, but whether that's email, web browsing, commerce, all of those things together, if we start fragmenting, if we start going down you know, kind of some of the routes that are coming internationally about more state control, that has a knock-on effect for human rights in other countries. It has a knock-on effect for commerce at home. So knitting this all together is incredibly important, because I think increasingly problems have tech components, but often societal problems can't be solved by technology alone.
2: You were listening to Nick Pickles from Twitter. Before we talk to the podcast panel, we're going to hear from Cornelius Hirsch, our resident polling expert. Thanks for joining us, Cornelius. Thank you very much, Ray. The hot topic that we've got to address now, given Theresa May keeps failing to get the Brexit deal through the British Parliament, is what would happen if the Brits actually voted in this European Parliament election in May? And I know that you've run the numbers to see what the impact would be on the different party groups. Do you want to sort of guide us through the biggest takeaways from that?
1: Yeah, so if we do this speculation game and ask ourselves what would happen, then obviously The first thing to address is the number of seats in total in the European Parliament, because that would probably go back to the old composition with 751 seats instead of
2: the 705 seats. So France would lose its five extra seats and Poland would lose its extra seats as well, I guess. Exactly.
1: Yeah. And that would completely benefit the Social Democrats, because they would obviously get back the Labour Party and in our simulation at the moment would give them another 20 seats. And of course, also the Tories would be back in the European Parliament. And they are obviously affiliated in the ECR groups so of the Conservative and Reformists.
2: So that would mean that the European People's Party is still the biggest group, but their advantage over the socialists, it's really down to 25 seats, something small like that. And then the yeah. Liberals would really be in a tight battle with the conservative and reformist group to see who's the third biggest, because they'd both be in that sort of 90 to 100 seat range, wouldn't they?
1: Exactly. So the margin between the EPP and the Social Democrats would become much closer. And also ECR and ALDE would basically be neck and neck and it would be really a much more interesting race.
2: And what's the unknown variable of the UK Independence Party or the kind of successes to it? Maybe something called the Brexit Party? Because they obviously wouldn't be showing up in national polling in Britain, because they they don't really function as a, a big party anymore, and they always tended to be much more successful in the European Parliament elections. So, is there a big unknown factor there? Could they barge in and scoop up a big chunk of the Brexit vote?
1: I think there are even more unknowns. What about the independent group, those uh, Labour Party MPs, and some of the Conservatives who are about to form this new group, the Independent Group, and would they? take part in this election as well. And then the question, which uh, groups in the parliament would they join? Also, I think in such a campaign, if really, the UK would delay Brexit and would be obliged to hold elections in May, I think in such a campaign, anything could happen. And the polls right now would maybe not be a good indication for the actual outcome in the UK.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. Polls are generally quite Accurate. Like, if you look at the broad scheme of people and organizations that try and make predictions about elections, pollsters do tend to be amongst the most accurate. But there are limits to polling, obviously. Cornelius Hirsch, thank you so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Now it's time for the podcast panel after this message.
0: A message from Naftograss of Ukraine, a core pillar of European energy security. When Russia's Gazprom abuses its dominant market position, Naftogaz relies on the rule of law to defend Ukraine's and Europe's interests. We have and will hold Gazprom accountable for its misconduct in the market for gas supplies to Europe. Since the revolution of dignity, Naftogaz's new management team transformed a loss-making enterprise into the biggest net contributor to the state budget. Over the last two years, it has provided one-sixth of state budget revenues. However, Ukraine is facing a high risk of a no-gas transit scenario due to the construction of Nord Stream 2. This will have devastating consequences. The state-owned energy sector would revert to loss-making, and Ukraine's GDP would shrink by up to 4%, which will cause a deterioration of economic conditions for the people of Ukraine and risk political stability. No transit of Russian gas through the Ukraine would also pose a serious threat to peace and security in Europe.
2: And now it's time for the podcast panel. Alva Finn, welcome back.
4: Hello, Ryan. Hi, Lena
2: Lena Rabarous, nearly about to get married. Welcome back.
4: Hi, Ryan. Hi, Alva. Uh,
2: look at the look on your face. What a nice <laughs> surprise to throw that one in there. We've got Thank lots you. of topics to talk about. There is a Syria conference taking place in Brussels this week. But my serious question is, what is the point of this conference? You don't have the United States there. You don't have Russia there. There's not that much money that anyone's talking about bringing to the table. And you have a bunch of people who still lack hope and prospects for rebuilding their lives in their home country. And I I don't see anyone who's bringing solutions to the table. And so I just don't understand why they're having this gap first.
4: Yeah, I think it's another example of how the EU wants to play a role in these types of conflict. I do think things like this keep the door open keep people talking about it, because we definitely don't want to forget about it. And this year, I heard that there was a lot more participation from Syrians themselves.
2: Ah, Lena has some views on that one.
4: Listen,
5: I definitely respect the fact that all the international community is looking forward to rebuilding and rehabilitating the Syrian lives. But there is an elephant in the room. Still, so far, we don't have any political solution for that. For what?
4: For the Syrian conflict.
2: But that's not on the agenda.
5: Yeah, nobody
4: is talking about that. But I do think it's about renewing people's commitment to solving problems. And if that's with money, then it's one thing. But they've weakened
2: it. There's no new money. You're doing an important piece of public engagement via a sculpture. Tell us about that.
4: Yeah, so the organisation that I work for, although I'm not a spokesperson for them at the moment, so I'm just going to tell you about it personally because I was there. We did a, a life-size 3D animated drawing from a eight-year-old Syrian. So basically, this Syrian child has only known war, and it's pretty harrowing. Actually, if you look at it, it shows death, it shows violence, it shows yeah, planes dropping bombs, that kind of thing. And the question is. We really need to bring this to an end, but we also need to focus on how to rehabilitate people who have only known war for the last eight years.
2: And and you thought it was valuable to do that now because journalists and decision makers in the EU would come across this and it might impact them or, or force them into some extra action.
4: Yeah, I think it's just a way of showing and bringing attention to something. And I mean, the solution to the Syrian problem is not in the EU unfortunately. We can't fix everything, but what they can do is bring people together to discuss what's going on. And obviously, there's been huge changes in the situation in Syria over the last year. So I think it's a time to, to come together. But it's true, not all conferences, political conferences, result in the resolution of a peace agreement? This is a humanitarian
5: conference. It's not a political conference. And it's not only an EU initiative. There are all over the world, all international agencies, all the governments, except for the two major players, the US and Russia. And both powers have the definite key in order to put an end for this ongoing conflict in Syria. It's repetitive from the EU. There's a lot of conflicts, lots of wars, and then everyone else uh, turn their ha- backs and then they give money in order to rebuild the country and focus on the humanitarian part. But this has to be hand-in-hand with a political solution. It, it's not a success that we keep doing conferences. Yeah, that's what I'm
2: lacking, is the acknowledgement of the limits of the conference and saying this is not the solution. But it is what we can do in these two days with the soft power resources that we have. If someone would stand up in front of a camera and say that, I'd find the whole thing a lot more credible.
4: I think that everybody agrees with that, to be honest. Like, there isn't anybody who attended that conference who was like, this is going to change. I mean, there is. I I bet we're the
2: only podcast having this conversation.
4: Absolutely.
5: Let's
2: see if we can get some political solutions on the home front. Over the last 10 days, we've seen French President Emmanuel Macron and Germany's non-Chancellor, the leader of the Christian Democratic Union, a.k.a. AKK, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, come out with their dueling visions for the EU. Now, Emmanuel Macron was obviously dazzling in his level of rhetoric and some of the promises and dreams that he put out there that have a few Eurosceptics and Euro-realists screaming. AKK was, you know pretty much as dull as dishwater. That's probably what a bunch of conservatives want to hear, but no one's going to remember it in the next hour or the next year, let's face it. What did you think of these two visions?
4: Well, she did say something that is interesting, that she wants the yeah the French to share their UN Security Council seat with the European <laughs> Union, which obviously... Famous. It's a good
2: way to shut up Macron, isn't it?
4: Yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting point. But it was definitely like a volley backwards, playing tennis a bit between themselves. And you had a good point. It was a bit annoying that they think that they can kind of make the EU and and decide the future of Europe all by themselves.
2: I know it's the complicated way of doing things, but this is 2019. Like, I think you really do need to have something like a constitutional convention if you want to move forward a big new vision for Europe. You can't just have two countries that represent a quarter of the population decide it for everyone that's just not how anything works in our digital world anymore especially not in a system where individual countries can veto things so yeah these guys it makes sense that they have a conversation but why don't we just do this properly from the beginning i'm in a bad mood this week aren't i
5: but i think it's a historical thing between germany and france i mean they just signed the the achen treaty just <laughs> anyone the, yeah Anyone
2: uh, think we're going to remember that in a year, please? Yes,
5: actually, I do think because these are agreements more than ever, I believe President Macron, he is going to definitely put hand in hand with anyone in order to strengthen Europe and do this stronger Schengen borders and to have a more stronger foreign policy and security for Europe. I do think that she... Well, they were
2: fighting within two weeks over the Saudi arms embargo.
5: Yes, why? Because the French cannot sell their weapons without the uh, German component in it. Mm-hmm. It's just like they were fighting over business. But it is her momentum of glory. She wanted to definitely show that she is not Merkel. She is not her predecessor. And she has her own point of views that are every leader. And once in a while, they have to come out and say, I'm different. But of course, it's but a matter what, of negotiations. What, what, what was and her national positive interests. point of
2: view? What, what does she want to do with Europe? She talked about doing Europe right, but I can't remember any of it.
5: I it was only three
2: days ago that she wrote it.
5: My reading is that she would like to give more power to national governments rather than give more power to Brussels.
4: I do think she just—it was like volleying back and forth. She kind of just responded to what he put on the table. I don't think it's a full vision of Europe from her, mm-hmm. but it's a response to him. And I think it's interesting because, yeah, you're right. You know, it's very strange for the leader of a party who isn't the chancellor, to respond to the prime minister of France. Just the president. Don't downgrade yes, Oh, my God. The president of the president of France, usually it would have been Merkel. So it's, yeah. it's a kind of...
2: And it's a, more than Merkel gave Macron the last time he gave a big speech on the EU.
4: Yeah, it's a clever political move, I think. Yeah. But yeah, she definitely was saying, you know, no minimum wage. Just to be clear, we're not going to agree to that. And it's true, even if we don't like to admit it, that when France and Germany agreed to things, usually everybody just kind of toes no. to them. <laughs> or in the past, they did. It's a changing environment, I think, among the member states now. It's never been so tense, I don't think.
2: Indeed. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. Thanks so much for listening. And if you haven't already joined our community, go to politico.eu forward slash registration and tick the EU Confidential box. And from now on, over the next 10 weeks, that means you'll also get some special episodes of a new mini-series called The XX Factor, where we examine women, power, and the EU election. As always, podcasting is a team effort, so thanks so much to Christina Gonzalez, Andrew Gray, and Wei Dong Lin.